From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. Uh, welcome to Hollywood. We are in Genesis chapter 8. And uh, the last time we left Noah and his family, they were floating on the ark. And hopefully today we'll be able to get them off the ark. We've been looking at, over the last two days, we have been looking at different theories about Noah's ark, where it is, does it still exist, did Noah rip it down and use it for firewood, did he use it for shelter, did he leave it there as a symbol for God and uh, do something else? Um, We don't know the answer to that question. And uh, I did send out the link to the video for some of you to basically see Uh, If you wanted to watch that video, I got a response uh, from a couple people saying that they watched the video and it was very interesting, uh, but nobody uh, commented on about whether or not the ark is uh, what they think is the the ark. So let's see. Uh, Jennifer says, what is the link for the Zoom call? Well, uh, you go to zoom.us and you type in uh, R phone number, which is 520-405-5224, 520-405-5224. That's our, that's our Zoom, Zoom call ID. And then it'll ask for a password, and the password is 14600. So if you just remember the church phone number and the church address and go to Zoom and start a Zoom, you know, to join a Zoom meeting, and you enter in the church phone number as the Zoom ID, and you enter in the first four digits or one four five one one four six zero zero so the first five digits of our um of our address then you will uh, be able to join us on the zoom call uh, and i i can also send that out later on today anyway so uh, sorry a little bit squirrel <laughs> anyway so today we're gonna find out do we get off of the ark because when we left noah and his family They were sitting there on the top of Mount Ararat, uh, which is in the area of Urartu, which is also Ararat, uh, in in the the, the writings of the early people that lived in this area. Uh, So that's kind of, they're floating around in this area. And we're gonna find out if they get out of the ark. Um, Yeah, so some people said it was very interesting, but yeah, you know, whether or not Noah's ark exists, is an interesting thing and it would be a fun thing if it was ever found but it doesn't necessarily shake our faith it is hard for us to believe it would be very incredible if an object that was left in a mountainside or next to a mountain six thousand years ago still existed okay that would be that's probably more of a a leap of faith, right, that it exists than not. I mean, it probably got destroyed uh, or maybe who knows, but um, I'm not, I'm not, my faith isn't, doesn't rest as to to whether or not Noah's Ark exists. And I pray that yours doesn't uh, rest on that either. It would be a really cool find if we ever found it, but if we don't find it, it, there's perfectly logical reasons to why it's not there. And um, our faith Uh, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's where our faith holds. So we are going to see if we can get Noah and his family off of the ark today. And I am just hoping that we can do that. So uh, we are going to go to the text 
and see if we can get Noah off of the ark. So let's just go take a look. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All of the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. So Noah finally gets off the ark with his wife, his sons and their wives, they're all off the ark. Uh, and now we can finally kind of put Genesis chapter 8 to bed. But before we do that, we should talk a little bit about what happened. So the first thing that Noah does is he sends out a raven. A raven is an unclean animal, uh, unlike a dove, which is a clean animal. So you don't eat ravens. They are flesh eaters. They, uh, the raven would have circled in above the ark and Noah would have seen it circling because if you've ever seen uh, ravens or you know any any animal that eats flesh they circle around uh, and then they land if there's a place for the raven to land like if there was a rotting corpse of some animal floating in the water the raven could land on the corpse and eat it a bit but then they start they keep circling so uh, Noah would have seen the raven circling as it's, you know, rotting flesh, going from rotting flesh to rotting flesh, maybe coming back to the ark periodically and perching on top of the ark. They're not social creatures. They don't like other people. They don't like uh, to be around. Uh, you know, they're, they're very skittish. So they, they would circle around and eat the flesh. And eventually, the raven would disappear. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily come back into the ark. The raven would, raven would just disappear. And that would signal to Noah that maybe the waters have subsided enough to where there's enough flesh to where the raven didn't need to be tethered to the ark. The raven could just move on and go from flesh to flesh and be happily ever after eating, um, eating flesh. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe would be so proud because the raven finally left probably on his doorstep, knocking on his window. Anyway, so at that point, uh, the raven goes away, and so now Noah sends out a dove. And he sends out a dove, and it circles around, and it comes back. So Noah picks up the dove. He waits another seven days. He sends out the dove, and this time, 
the dove comes back with the olive branch. And this signals to Noah that there's now, a, you know, at least a little bit of life out there and that it's getting very, very close. And of course, we all know that the olive branch is a symbol of, is a universal symbol for peace. If you go anywhere in the world and you extend an olive branch, that's a symbol of peace. And it's a symbol of peace based upon this story in Genesis because the olive goes, the, the dove goes out, grabs the olive branch, comes back, and this is a symbol. Well, it's a symbol because if you look at the raven, the raven goes to and fro. And, there, and early commentators would say that the raven is a symbol, symbol of, of Satan or the darkness that was, a, you know, the symbol of the flood and the death and the destruction that the flood brought with it. That there's, um, there's this image of, in scripture that says Satan roams to and fro and the raven roams to and fro. And so there's this, there's this symbology that the raven represents death and destruction and all of the horrible things that happened from the flood. And it brings putrid stench and it brings obnoxiousness all across the world. And that's the symbol of the raven. But then Noah sends out the dove. And the dove comes back to Noah. The dove uh, is, is friendly to Noah and to the ark. And then the dove comes back with an olive branch. And now we know that there's life outside of the ark, right? That, that God and all of his death and destruction, we know that everything's destroyed outside of the ark, but now the, the dove comes back with an olive branch, which is the first sign of new life in a new world. And it must have been for the people in the ark wondering, will there be life after this? I mean, sure, the animals can come out, but what about the plants? What about, what about the world as we knew it? I mean, imagine that, that you are stuck on this ark and you are wondering, you know, sure, we're alive, but when we get out of this thing, are we going to be able to survive? Uh, will there be food and plants and all that sort of thing as we get out of the ark? And so when the dove came with the olive branch, it must have brought incredible relief and joy to Noah and his family. And that's why it's such a powerful symbol of peace, because now we know that life can go on, that peace is possible. This peace between God and man, this olive branch that was extended uh, through the dove into the people on the ark. And it must have just been incredible joy for them to see the, the olive branch because now they imagine, you know, 150 days or whatever on the ark and all of a sudden now you see that life can go on. Um, so as a symbol of peace, we know that, uh, you know, if you extend an olive branch, it means is there a way out of this death and destruction of the relationship or of nations or whatever? Is there, is there a way for life to go on? Is there new life in the midst of death? I mean, that's basically what peace is, right? You have conflict, which is death, and, and there's death and destruction and ravens are eating everywhere. Uh, and then finally someone comes and brings an olive branch and says, hey, let's give new life a try. And so the people in the ark receive the olive branch from the dove and they say, okay, let's see if we can make out of this death and destruction new life. And so they do. So it really is truly a universal symbol of peace. As it should be. I, I am actually, I am pleased that 
the symbol of peace is an olive branch, and it all comes back to Genesis chapter 8. I just really think that's a, a cool symbology. and has been part of our culture for as long as our culture has been around. So that's really cool. So now Noah is out of the ark. Um, let's see. Um, let's just really... Uh, we always say that the ark, that the rain came for 40 days and nights, that we sing the song... The, it rained and poured for 40 daisies, daisies, nearly drove those animals, crazies, crazies, children of the Lord. So we sing that song. We know that the rain came for 40 days and 40 nights, but the time on the ark was actually a lot longer than that. Um, I mean, if you think about it, you've got this deluge of water that covers all the land, right? Uh, everything dies, and then... Uh, and then the plants have to time, you know, have time to grow again, you know, to sprout and get uh, whatever they're doing. And so, uh, if you think about it logically, it had to be more than forty days and forty nights that they're actually in the ark. And the answer is, yeah, it was a whole lot longer than forty days and forty nights. Let's just look at some of the verses in Scripture just to kind of get a timeline on it. So, uh, chap, way back in chapter seven, verse ten, after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. So. Noah started entering the ark with the animals, and then after seven days, so I don't know if it took seven days to load the ark, or he loaded the ark and waited seven days before the floodwaters came, but there's seven days there in Genesis 7.10. And then Genesis 7.2, and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. That's, the, that's what we say. The rain came for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it's repeated again, verse 7.17, after 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. Then we get to verse 24 of chapter 7. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So it wasn't just 40 days of rain, but the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Think about how long that is. That's five months where the waters and the, you know, the rain's 40 days, but the water's flooding the earth for 150 days. Then verse eight, chapter eight, verse three, the water started then receding steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. So, um, you know, as a, uh, I probably, uh, I, I'm sure you know that in a previous life, I, I was a civil engineer. And uh, as a civil engineer, I, um, I would, uh, you know, study things like hydrology. And uh, one of the things we studied in hydrology was um, was what's called uh, water water flow and water stuff like that. And you have a thing called a hydrograph. And a hydrograph basically is a drawing that shows. Um, I just I'll just see if I can do a hydrograph. Oh, I did want to do that. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, let's see. We are we are. Where do we want to go? We want to go to here. Yeah, so so here we have uh, a unit of time and then rain flow and rain goes up and then it comes down again. And that's called a hydrograph. And so basically we have 150 days here and 150 days here, which is interesting because um, typically hydrographs are kind of, you know, you have the rain that comes and then it recedes. So that that's that's how rain happens. Is called. Okay, I don't know why I talked about that. But anyway, you have a hydrograph. And so you have 150 days before rain, 150 days after the rain. And then uh, we'll go back to here. Uh, after 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark uh, and sent out the raven. And then Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove. 
And then he waited seven more days and the dove went out, but this time it did not return. So you have all of these different things that Noah did. Um, and if you look, if you look at uh, verse chapter 8, 13, by the first day of the first month, so then we still have Noah in the ark. The doves already come back with the olive branch, but you have the first day of the first month. Uh, the water had dried up, and then by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. So if you look at that, the first day of the first month and the 27th day of the second month, you still have like two months there uh, to let the earth dry. So basically, you have seven days to load the ark. It rains for 40 days. It's flooding for 150 days. That's the peak hydrograph. And then it comes down and the land is drying out and it's taking a lot of time, 150 days for it to dry out. And then uh, the water completely dries up by the 27th day of the second month. So if you add all that up together and you look at it, um, you could almost come up with a timeline. And it's basically seven days to load or whatever before the rains come. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and then you have 150 days here, and that's the peak. And then you have another 75 and 150 days over to here. And then he waits another 29 days, and he waits 156 days. So basically, from the time that he starts loading the ark until the time that he leaves the ark, that is one year and 17 days. It is not just 40 days and 40 nights, okay? It is a long, long time for Noah to be in that ark. So if you are in your home and you're complaining about the fact that you've been sequestered in your house for, what has it been, three months, almost coming into four months? Think of poor Noah and his wife and all those stinky animals and his kids and their, you know, all those people stuck in the ark for a year and 17 days. Just think about that, if you will. That is a long time to be stuck in the ark. And, uh, and they made it through. They absolutely made it through. So um, this is where Jennifer and I have always told our children, I can do anything for a year. Uh, when we went to seminary, when we got out of seminary, when we came to do our internship, uh, or whenever we did anything, the one thing we always told our children is we can do anything for a year. And it harkens back here to Genesis chapter 8. They were in the ark for a year. And so, my friends, you can do anything for a year. Um, I know it seems like a long time, and uh, but if you put your mind to it and with the grace of God and God is in your life, you can do anything for a year. And so... Uh, you know, if you're going to go to college and it's your first year of college and you're worried, well, I survive at college, you know, well, you can do anything for a year. I mean, a year is a finite period of time at which at the end of a year, if it seems like it's not working, you can change. You don't have to always continue on doing what you're doing. You can definitely change things. And for, I don't know why, but we've always just clung to that to say, I can do anything for a year. And so we... Um, We've hoped, probably, you know, uh, that that uh, our children can understand that uh, you know life isn't permanent. All things aren't. You know, everything is temporary. You can do anything for a year, and if you don't like what you're doing, stick it out for a year and then try something else. 
You know, it's a new job, try it for a year. It's a new apartment, try it for a year. You know, whatever it is that you've got in, going on in your life, just try it. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, you can always change and retool and move on, right? My goodness. So um, that's the lesson from Genesis chapter 8, right? Is that they survived the ark for a year. They got out. That God restored humanity onto the earth. The plants survived and they were able to start all over again from this flood. And, um, and that was God's grace to, and his provision to provide for them. And it's God's grace and provision to provide for us. Uh, everything we would ever possibly want and need in this life, God provides. Uh, if you look at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the only thing you really need in life is food, shelter, clothing, I guess you could say, and relationship. If you have those few things in your life, you have everything you possibly need. Everything on top of that is gravy. And so, and we have all those things in abundance here in the United States, even in the midst of a pandemic, we can maintain relationship. I'm at some level maintaining a relationship with you, you at some level of retaining a relationship with me and with each other. And that is just an awesome thing. We should thank God and praise God that we have this technology so that we can do this uh, because it is really, really wonderful. Um, I, uh, I don't know how we'd get through this pandemic without all this technology. It'd be really, really tough. When they had the flu from the 1918 was a Spanish flu, um, they didn't have all these technologies. And uh, it must have been really, really difficult. Of course, back then they didn't sequester at home. I think what they did was they put on face coverings and they basically, you know, went out because they, they had no choice. It was either go out or die. I mean, they didn't have all the blessings that we have in our in our world today. Uh, but we have this huge blessing that we have so much technology and we're able to stay connected. We're, I'm able to order stuff off of Amazon and it arrives. I could order stuff and pick it up outside at the curb at the Safeway. I mean, if you think about how many wonderful technologies we have, it really is really, truly wonderful. Um, so that is, uh, we are, do I want to go on to next thing? Uh, let's see. Yeah, why not? We'll go to the rest of Genesis. Verse 20. The Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night will never cease. So um, this is God's promise that, uh, well, for a couple things. First is that we're evil from our, from our childhood. That mankind, even, and this is where we get the idea of original sin, right? Even from our childhood, we are evil. Uh, there is no part of us that isn't evil from birth. Uh, that's a hard concept because you look at a little innocent baby and you say, how could that little innocent grandchild that I'm going to see hopefully here pretty quick, how could it possibly be evil? But we know that the stain of mankind from original sin, from the fall of man, 
that that it's not like what every child is doing evil at every moment, right? But it's it's a it's an original sin. It's a systemic sin that is, exists in the human condition, uh, that exists in all of it. And there's no way to breed it out of us. There's no way to to change that. We're all evil, and the root of evil is basically that we focus on ourselves. That is the root of evil. Um, we're more concerned about ourselves than we are about God or our neighbor. And so we have to be taught in our life that God wants us to love him and that God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That, that it's not, the life isn't just about us. And if you think about that as a definition of evil or original sin, then if you look at a child, and yes, it's beautiful and it's cuddly and it's wonderful and so sweet and precious, there's no question about it, but it, at every level, it's all about themselves. I mean, when the baby's hungry, it lets the whole world know that it's hungry. When the baby's tired, it lets the whole world know that it's tired uh, because a baby from day one is focused more on itself and its own survival than about anybody else. All the rest of it has to be taught. And so you have to understand the, the definition of original sin is not necessarily going out and killing somebody or doing that. It's, it's a systemic thing in, in the human condition where we are more concerned about ourselves than we are concerned about anybody else. Um, and that does not ever leave us. The only way that we deal with it is that Jesus came to the earth and bought and purchased us even though we are sinful and makes us acceptable to God. He covers our original sin. He covers all the times that we think about ourselves and he uses the power of the Holy Spirit to clean us up, to make us presentable to God. And that's the only way that we're presentable to God. It's nothing that we can do because original sin is endemic into the human condition. There's nothing we can do to change it. We can fight against it. We can think more about others than we think about ourselves. But at some level, way deep, deep down, we are still infected with original sin. And without Jesus in our life, that infection could destroy us. But with Jesus in our life and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually do what God's called us to this earth to do, which is to love him and to love our neighbors. Uh, and, and the only way we can do that is by having an outside power to come in and clean us up and make us acceptable to God and make the things that we do acceptable. Um, so that's, uh, that's where evil from childhood, and it's from Genesis here. And then God says, I will never again destroy all the living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, right? We have seed time and harvest and cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Um, the, early, the early Jewish people saw this as six seasons, we mostly live in four seasons, uh, but whether or not this is a indicative of seasons or not, it's just basically the long that as long as the earth endures, which is an interesting thing. He says as long as the earth endures. He does not say the earth will endure forever. He says as long as the earth endures, he will provide spring and summer and fall and winter and all the seasons and all the rain and and cold and heat and all this, he will provide it so that we can flourish on this earth. But he doesn't say that the earth is going to endure forever. Um, and then, of course, Noah built an altar to the Lord. 
So he took some of the same clean animals. This is the first example we have of a sacrifice in the Old Testament. And after getting out of the ark, you know, we might kiss the ground and be grateful that we're no longer in that stinky ark anymore. The first inclination that Noah has is to build an altar and to sacrifice some of these animals that he has had with him on the ark this whole time. And now he's going to sacrifice those and give them back to the Lord. And so here we have the first example of sacrifice. I think we'll pick up on that topic tomorrow because uh, sacrifice is uh, a very, very important part of humanity. And there's a reason why it is. And uh, it ties into here to Genesis. So we'll spend some time on that tomorrow. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Um, why don't we close in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that you watched over Noah and his family for a whole year. Lord, we know that you watch over us at all times. Lord, uh, continue to be with us as we're hunkered down in our own little ark and uh, help us to rely on you and to know that at some point you will let us out and we'll be free again. Uh, but thank you for all the technology. Thank you for us gathering together today. And until we meet again tomorrow, keep us ever in your grace. In Jesus' name.